0: This presentation today has been condensed from a three-part sermon series. So yeah, I know, which may be a, may be a fool's errand, but I liked how these, these three messages wove together. So you're gonna see it has, it has three parts that I think, I hope, uh, work, work together uh, to help us think about being better together. So where I wanna begin is, is just with a statement that God has always intended us to live in community. I mean, we humans are profoundly social creatures and we, we need each other. Whether we're in a Stone Age time or in a post-industrial time, that we, we have a profound need for relationship. But God also knows, surely knows, how hard it is for us to get along. And I'm not going to rehearse all the examples in our contemporary world That you know it as well as well as I, so what I want to do today is explore three things that provide a powerful rationale, a powerful impetus for us to pursue unity in the midst of our diversity, and by diversity I'm thinking of all kinds of, of diversity, ideological diversity, racial diversity, political diversity, all, all the various kinds of, of, of diversity that there are, and so we're going to look at, at Jesus' ministry, we're going to look at... Uh, Paul's theology of the cross, and we're going to look at the canon of Scripture uh, to get get some guidance for pursuing unity in the midst of our diversity. So I want to begin by talking about depth perception. Uh, Depth perception is our ability to perceive the world in three dimensions and to judge the relative distance between objects. Uh, Depth perception happens as your brain processes different images from each eye. You may think they see the same thing, but it's slightly different. Each eye sees something slightly different, and then it combines them to form a single image. And so depth perception makes it possible to tell if something is closer or farther. Now, you may be old enough to remember the View Master. Remember the View Master, okay? It worked on this principle. Uh, Each reel had a pair of images, and when your brain combined them, it looked as if you were seeing something in, in three dimensions okay so here's Chechenitza, i think um uh, now by today's high definition re- virtual reality standards it's not much but to a five-year-old kid 40 years before the smartphone it was pretty awesome okay so uh why 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 depth perception how does this impact us well uh, when you're driving on a two-lane road your depth perception allows you to decide if it is safe to pass on the other side, judging by you know, how far away oncoming traffic is and how fast it's approaching. Um, when receiving service in volleyball, depth perception helps you judge where the ball is going and how fast uh, it's moving there. Uh, when playing baseball, depth perception helps you judge uh, when and where to hold your mitt so that the ball doesn't smack you uh, in the nose. Uh, airline pilots use depth perception in landing. Ship captains use it. Uh, in docking. Train engineers use it in decelerating the train into the station. Tractor, trailer, truck drivers uh, use depth reception to, 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 to back into impossibly narrow uh, unloading docks. I don't know how they do it, but they deserve all the money that they make. Okay. Now, all of this business about depth perception is made possible by our two eyes spaced apart. And by the way, did you know that animals who have eyes spaced further apart have really, really keen depth reception. The farther the spacing, the better the depth. Uh, Perception, And so that depth perception sends the signals to our brain and then it combines that data and it uses that data to help us determine where we are, where we're going and how fast and what's coming at us and how fast and how best to proceed. Okay, so our first point today is that two eyes are better than one because two eyes perceive more clearly, give better perspective and offer correction as needed. Uh, Another way to say this, is, oh, wait, I skipped a section. Uh, uh, Oh, is that we're better together. Okay, so if coffee is good, coffee and donuts are better. If pancakes are good, pancakes and syrup are better. If peanut butter is good, peanut butter and jelly uh, is better. Uh, And so what I'm saying is that as believers in Jesus and followers in his way, we are better off together, even if we might drive each other little bats, sometimes. Uh, and we're better together, not because all the flavors are the same and we all see the world in exactly the same way. That's not why we're better uh, together. So our point of departure is thinking about Jesus and his selection uh, of the 12, his inner circle. I, have you ever considered, I'm sure you have, the combination of characters that Jesus invited to to follow him? Um, Luke, t- Luke um, 6... 12 through 16, uh, describes how after Jesus had stayed up through the night, praying, uh, when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So, Jesus calls Matthew, uh, Matthew 9, says that he's a tax collector, and as a tax collector, he would have been more educated and probably literate in Greek and Aramaic. Uh, His fellow Jews would have despised him or at least disliked him strongly for collaborating with the Romans, which was a foreign occupying force that required Jewish people to to pay taxes. Uh, The Jewish people had no voice in how those taxes were determined, and we all know how much we love taxation without representation. That hasn't (laughs) changed in 2000 years. So here's Matthew working in cahoots with the Romans until at least he is called to be a follower of Jesus. And then Jesus also calls Simon, who in Luke's gospel is remembered as the zealot. Now, in fairness, this could be Simon the zealous one, religiously zealous, passionate for the faith. That is a legitimate interpretation of that. So let me let me acknowledge that. Okay. But zealot was also the word or the the description given to radical anti-Romans who advocated armed rebellion against Roman occupation. Uh, And and these zealots eventually, maybe not in 30 AD, but by 60, 65, going into the the Jewish rebellion, uh, those zealots would have included uh, knife-wielding sicarii, uh, who would mingle with crowds and slit the throats of Romans and perceived Roman sympathizers. So here potentially we have a Roman employee called to work alongside a zealot who could have been violently opposed to anyone friendly to Roman power. So what do you suppose those guys talked about at Disciple Pollux? <laughs> do you think they had any uh, lively conversations? I mean, I I, I would be tempted to To you know, to say to Jesus, you can't put these two guys in the same room. It's like Red Sox Yankees. It's like it's like Lakers Celtics. Uh, It's like Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. (laughs) You don't do this. And in fact, I I might even have some advice for Jesus. Uh, and, And here's how it would go. I would say, Lord, I can tell you how to build a strong team. Okay, here it is. Gather a bunch of people with shared resentments and fears. (laughs) Gather this a like-minded crew who loathe the powerful Romans and distrust the intellectual Hellenists and are full of class envy toward the Sanhedrin. You can exploit all of this. You will have an army to take over, if not the world, at least, uh, the region of Palestine. But Jesus isn't interested in building a team based on shared resentments and fears. Jesus is building a community formed by redemptive grace, and so this grace enables us to embrace others who are quite different from us, so that together we may embody the reconciling character of God's kingdom reign. Uh, perhaps you've seen or heard of uh, Doris Goodwin's 2005 book, Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, it chronicles how, after he won the election in 1860, very troubled times indeed, you may recall, Uh, Lincoln appointed three men to his cabinet who had competed for the Republican nomination. They included New York Senator William Seward, uh, Ohio Governor Salmon Chase, and Missouri's elder statesman Edward Bates. These were strong and opinionated leaders who had often hated each other and clashed and sometimes wouldn't even be in the same room together. Uh, And Goodwin reflects on this choice to appoint these as part of the cabinet, reflects they had fiercely opposed one another and often contested their chief on important questions. But a cabinet which could agree at once on every such question would be no better or safer than one counselor. Mm-hmm. What's the point of having one eye? You, you need you need depth perception. You need multiple eyes, and you don't get that with clones. Mm-hmm. You get that with with diverse. You get that with diverse uh, viewpoints and uh, experience. So, Lincoln chose leaders who could enrich his depth perception, and bring a variety of gifts to the table and give him diverse perspectives that he needed to lead the nation through the difficult time of the Civil War. So, consider how we're better together in the church, especially when we bring our different viewpoints to the table. Now, I, I've come through a, a bumpy time in my own congregation, and I've questioned whether, whether I always agree with this, but I do, I, I do think there is, there is wisdom here. Um, And I think about where do we need two eyes? Where do we need multiple perspectives in order to see more clearly and discern more deeply within the body of Christ? Think about these possible focal points, okay? These, These are contrasts. Should we focus on human rights or on human responsibilities? Should we have a healthy disdain of legalism or a healthy disdain of relativism? Should we avoid tired ruts, or should we follow proven paths? Should we value healthy reform, or should we value the stability of time-honored legacy? Should we value creativity and innovation? Should we value the integrity of our identity? And I hope you're hearing me say, not either or, but we need those to be, to, to be working in tension with each other, so that the end result is better and deeper discernment so you see how valuable having two eyes can be if we only have one eye we lack the spiritual depth perception that we need the, the, the wisdom of ecclesiastes three um, there is a time for everything uh, under every uh, uh, under every season there's a time for every for, excuse me blah. for everything there is a season there we go And a time for every matter under heaven so a time to be born a time to die a time to plant a time to pluck up what is planted there are all these seasons and we won't know what time it is as well if we gouge out or exclude one eye against uh, the other we won't know how far away we are from something how fast that thing is approaching if we don't have a variety of perspectives in the body so this is my first point as believers in jesus and followers in his way we need depth perception even when we don't see things exactly the same even when we have contrasting viewpoints and yours is wrong even when we disagree about some things, <laughs> Jesus gathered a diverse crew of disciples to help preach the gospel and propagate the church after he was gone. So, a question: Do you believe that that was an accident, or do you think that Jesus valued the insights that depth perception, differing perspectives, bring to the table? All right, that's the first one. Okay, and the second is likened to it. <laughs> In part two, I want to talk about a new human family. <laughs> but to get us started, I, I want us to think about before and afters. So, we so we're gonna we're gonna illustrate the human humor side of it for How'd you get that picture of me so fast? <laughs> <laughs> so we all appreciate or many of us appreciate the positive impact of coffee on our day giving us that needed boost and some people have rules about if you can talk to them before or after their first or second or third cup of coffee okay Uh, here's the real reason that the selfie stick was invented t-rex's short arms you know before (laughs) and after Uh, we all know the feeling of being hangry uh, and the difference that food (laughs) can make to bringing our blood sugars back in balance and and you know, bringing us back to even keel. Uh, and here's one before and after, teacher here at the beginning, any, any teachers here of any any kinds or yeah. those connected with school systems, you have to understand uh, the reality of this. Um, now there, there are many out there who will, who will tell you that the only thing that lies you between you and happiness, between you and a better life is their product, their experience. Um, but but you know, maybe this meme helps illustrate, you know, social media versus reality. The great before and after may not live up to its billing, right? But here's, here's my question that brings us into part two. What if the anticipated after was so important? that you decided it was worth pursuing and striving for, even if the final result wasn't perfect, even if the final result didn't quite measure up to, you know, that that, that great picture that that you think of before. Well, what if it was still worth striving after? Well, that's that's what we're gonna think about for just a couple minutes now. So Paul articulated a vision in Ephesians 2 that is worth going after, even if we stumble and struggle along the path. Okay, so. Paul's letters to the Ephesians, I'm sure you are well aware, has a special emphasis on our unity in Christ, right? Chapter four, one word in faith, one baptism, one God and Father to us right? that, that That is a robust theme, especially in this, in this letter. And Ephesians two gets toward the heart of this message in a great scene, and there are actually a couple of great scenes of before and after in Ephesians two, but I'm gonna focus on, on one. Um, Paul describes this huge group of people who are living without God. And he makes a series of before and after comparisons. Paul talks about being without Christ and then being with Christ. He talks about being far away from God and then near God. Experiencing hostility and then experiencing peace. Being kept out and then having walls that, that, that separated, being torn down. Um, experiencing being aliens and then becoming citizens. And being strangers to God and then... They'd be members of God's household. I mean, it's a great before and after image. And so let me, let me just lead us through a couple of these verses to, to give us the sense. So then remember that at one time, you, Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. Remember that, it, what, that you were at one time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise and having no hope. And without God in the world, And it's a picture of a bleak existence apart from God and God's covenant people, Israel. Uh, And this scene reminds me of the scene of being an outsider like a snitch who didn't have the stars and was excluded from the other snitches, Frankfurter roasts, and they're just not welcome, they're not not included. And Paul reminds these Gentiles that they were Christless, stateless, friendless, um, hopeless, and godless. I might add unemployed in Greenland if you're fans of the Princess Bra. But <laughs> believe that alone. So that's before. And he says, but now, in Christ, Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. God's action in Christ has changed everything for Gentile believers, creating this before great, this great before. And after now, a little little history here to help us appreciate what Paul is getting at with this uh, this dividing wall. All right, so you may be familiar that the, the Jerusalem Temple was divided into various sections with a graduating level of holiness and exclusivity associated with each. So you had the outermost courtyard in which uh, the court of the Gentiles, which was e- e- in which everyone was was welcome, including unclean uh, foreigners. And then there was the court of women, which was open to Jewish men and women and was as far as any Jewish women were allowed to go in the temple. Then there was the court of the Israelites, uh, which was for Hebrew men alone, and they could go and observe the sacrifices taking place in the court of the priests, which was reserved, of course, for the priests. Then you are probably familiar from the book of Hebrews. There was the holy place that was for the priests alone and the holy of holies. The high priest could only enter once a year. So, I mean, you see that, I mean, this, is, this, is, this mm-hmm. is ratcheting up the deeper you go in. Now, interestingly, here's an inscription that was found in 1871 uh, at the dividing point of the court of the Gentiles and the inner courtyard. And it said, no foreigner is to enter within the partition wall and enclosure around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which will ensue. Huh? <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> okay. So Paul, I think, is very likely drawing on the dividing wall as, as a metaphor, but he's pointing to something that, at least in some of his, in some of his readers' uh, memories or minds, it would, be a, it would be something familiar to them. This is a historical reality. And so Paul's dividing barrier of hostility uh, wasn't just a physical one. Uh, it was also relational. So let me give you a couple of quotes. Here's, here's from the Roman historian Tacitus, writing with typical antisemitism. The Jews regard as profane, all we hold as sacred. On the other hand, they permit all that we abhor. The ways of the Jews are preposterous and mean. Okay, well, that's a little, a little <laughs> mean-spirited, but yeah. uh, you know, some of the Jewish rabbis gave as good as they got. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the best, to the best of the Gentiles, death, and to the best of snakes, a broken back. Uh, so perhaps you can see the need for Jesus to do what he accomplished, Paul says, on the cross. He is our peace. In his flesh, he made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, not just the, you know, the separation wall in, in the Jerusalem temple, but this the hostilities uh, that exist between uh, these different groups. And then he goes on, and he writes, that he has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new. Humanity in the place of two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. So let's be clear. Um, Paul is not here saying that, that the moral standards of the law have gone away. It's not that. It's that what divides us has been removed. Christ brings Jews and Gentiles into one body, one community, by means of the cross, And through that cross, our alienation, not only from God, the vertical alienation, but also potentially the horizontal alienation has also been broken and and being reconciled. All right, so let's think for just a second about our tribal human nature. Hmm. I don't think we need a lot of illustrations here. Hmm. Uh, But we do have these tendencies to build walls. Now, each of us is part of a tribe. We, we can't escape that. You can't say, I don't belong. You, you are. You're, you're part of a family. You're part of an ethnic group, You're part of a country. You're, you, you, sorry, you, you can't opt out. Okay. Um, and being in a tribe is mostly a good thing, potentially. It, 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 it is. If, if for example, um, tribes give us a sense of home and belonging. Tribes help us to carry our pain. And our suffering—it's amazing how we can carry pain together that alone would just overwhelm us. So, so tribes serve a huge and valuable function. Here's the problem: okay, tribes make assumptions about those who are outside the tribe. That's what we just do, and the most natural thing to do uh, is to think the worst of those who aren't part of our tribe. In fact, I might say it this way, every tribe has a superiority complex. You've probably seen this, you know, our blessed homeland, their barbarous wastes, our glorious leader, their wicked despot, all the way down. I mean, this is, this is what we do. It's, it's, it's natural, it's, it's part of the human condition. Um, so I'm, I'm not arguing against loving your tribe, but we can't be blindly tribal. Uh, the easiest thing to do is to see the faults of other tribes and, and to gloss over the sins of your own tribe. And here, the Hebrew prophets are a magnificent example for us. Yes, they could be critical of their neighboring nations, but you know who the Hebrew prophets railed against? Their own! <laughs> calling them back to faithfulness to God and against idolatry, calling them to love their neighbor and to quit committing injustices against the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien among you. Uh, I mean, that is, that's a brilliant a brilliant and counterintuitive insight of scripture, one that will stand the test of time. Um, and so we have to develop the capacity to be self-critical within our own tribes and to see our own sins, rather than reaching over for the, well, the speck in our brothers or sisters' eye. <laughs> uh, we better tend to our, own, to our own laws. All right, so think about this in terms of race, think about this in terms of, of gender. Uh, reconciliation doesn't mean that distinctions in gender or race don't exist we continue in Christ to to be male or female or black or brown or white or or Asian those things are not erased and in fact our differences express I think the beauty and diversity of creation uh, and we celebrate that Uh, in fact I I would be a fool if I went home and and told my wife honey when I'm with you I, I don't even think of you as female I have to see what that's just game. I think I get smacked in the head. If I, of course, she wants me to appreciate the differences between us. Those are, those are God given, uh, those, are, those are a, a gift. Um, so, Paul here teaches us that we can and must be the body of Christ together, even with our tribal distinctions. And so, the task of the church then is to pursue and to make every effort to maintain. The unity that Christ has given, but it's not an automatic unity. It's one that has to be lived into, grown into, practiced, and pursued. A reflection on the early church that sometimes we think, oh, if we could just get back to the early church, they they just had it right. Mm -hmm. Let me just say, the early church never had a golden era. In fact, in church history, the church has never had a a golden era. And if you're not aware of that, you haven't read. Uh, There, there's never been a time where everyone got along perfectly. Read the epistles. I don't know that there would be epistles if there wasn't early church conflict and, 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 yeah. and issues. For example, Peter had to be called out in Galatians 2 uh, for racial preferences and hypocrisy. Uh, he hung out with the Gentiles and the Jews from Jerusalem came, and then he kind of separated himself from them. Uh, The wealthy members of the church in Corinth had to be called out because they turned the Lord's Supper into something other than the Lord's Supper, favoring, eating with each other, and neglecting the poor who couldn't get there in time for for the full meal. Uh, In the church in Acts, Acts chapter 6, the Greek widows were being ignored. Now this is Jerusalem, home of the, the Jewish widows. They were being cared for, but the Greek widows were being ignored. And the church had to respond to that blind spot, and to change its practices, I, I think that's where deacons were invented, or at least rose up to kind of seek to, be, to, to meet uh, that, that need. Um, so the work that we are called to do to keep down the dividing wall of hostility has never uh, been, been easy. But one of the things we might do, rather than focusing on the differences that separate us, what if we considered <laughs> the sins that separate all of us from God, Would it change anything if before we saw race or gender, marital status or income, we saw fellow human beings struggling uh, before God with their own besetting sins, just as we do? Those who are as much in need of grace as we are. Um, I think it's important for us to see how big that before and after is for all of us, for all, all human beings. And the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And we have been reconciled to one another through the cross. But there is work to live into that reality. All right, C.S. Lewis said, The church is not a human society of people united by their natural affinities. That's the Rotary Club, okay? Don't don't confuse that with the church. Um, The church is the body of Christ in which all members, however different, must share the common life complementing and helping one another precisely by their differences. So we are called to be nothing less than a new human family. All right. Hey, we're two-thirds done. All right. So far, we've observed how Jesus gathered a wide range of characters to be his disciples, from a tax collector to a zealot, in order to increase their depth perception. Jesus taught them to heal the sick and to cleanse lepers, to cast out unclean spirits, and to proclaim God's kingdom reign together. We just looked at Paul's teaching and the great before and after in human history before humankind was divided up into us and them, the wall of hostility separating us. The power of the cross has created this great after with Jesus himself creating in himself a new human family, making peace, reconciling both groups through the cross. Jesus brings us together. And now, part three. Aren't you excited? <laughs> I am. All right. Let's talk about the richness and diversity in Scripture as a third entry point into appreciating that that the diversity we experience in humans, that that the diversity that drives us crazy, is kind of just baked into things, okay? All right, to get us started, I want us to consider two different kinds of gardens, French and English style uh, of garden. I'm indebted to Carolyn Purnell for, for some of these insights. Okay, so the French garden is a style of garden based on symmetry and the principle of imposing order on nature. It reached its clearest expression under King Louis XIV during the late 1600s. The most famous example can be seen in the Garden of Versailles. Uh, So typically a French garden is situated on flat terrain. It has a strong symmetrical axis, usually centering on the house, or in this case, the palace. Um, And paths radiate from circular features that when viewed from above, you can see the scroll work and the geometric shapes. Now, the French garden reflected the political culture of its time. Louis XIV was the first French absolutist king, and he imposed his will not only on the people, but also on nature through the ordering of gardens. By manipulating the landscape, nature could be made rational, structured, And the French garden came to serve as a political and intellectual symbol. In the Enlightenment, new ideas in math and science could be spatially implemented. And the emphasis on rationality was made tangible in these outdoor spaces. Now I have a contrast for you. Mm -hmm. By contrast, the English garden came into being in the early 1700s and reached its height in the Romantic movement of the 1790s. It replaced more formal and symmetrical French gardens, and it highlighted the variety of nature and nature's capacity to inspire the imagination. English gardens often included a lake or a pond and gently rolling lawns set against groves of trees, and sometimes imitation ruins overgrown with foliage. And visitors to an English garden were invited to freely wander its lawns wherever they took them. These gardens were conceived of as spaces of natural imagination. And so the English garden was intended as a creative space where one could meander and turn a corner and be surprised. Oh, I didn't know that would be there. And there it is. So who knew that gardens could express such different philosophies about the relationship between humans and nature. All right, so I want you to keep the English and French gardens in mind as we reflect on the richness of Scripture. Consider how God, in God's wisdom, saw fit to bring together the rich variety of writings in the library of 66 books that we call the Canon of Scripture, or the Bible. Now, the canon here is not not a piece of artillery uh, that shoots missile, right? It's from a Greek word for measuring stick or ruler, and it describes a general principle or criterion by which something is judged. And so having a canon of Scripture means that we have a set of writings that are our measuring stick for how we teach and how we live and how we practice our faith. So, observation. The canon of Scripture brings together a healthy variety of holy writings by which we can gain the depth perception we need to live with wisdom in our world. Have you noticed that all the books of the Bible don't say the exact same thing? Mm-hmm. And there are different forms. There is story form, long narratives. There are psalms. There are proverbs. There is wisdom. Uh, there is prophetic oracle. Uh, there is parable there is letter, there is apocalypse, all these different forms. Uh, And and what I wanna say is that this richness of biblical writings is not an accident. That didn't get by someone. Um, That that this richness that sometimes is like, yee, how do I bring all this together? That is there by design. Uh, So, well, what do you mean by this? Well, let me offer a couple of examples. And let me just say, I could give dozens of examples. I've picked two. Okay, but, but, but trust me, and I hope in your imagination and memory you will, you will be able to go there and to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what he's talking about. Okay, so Scripture often presents us with healthy tensions that require discernment. In other words, Scripture doesn't give, give us an answer that works in every single situation, hmm. Scripture gives us various perspectives that we have to know okay, what time is it and how do we apply this? Okay. Uh, Example number one, let's talk about government. Okay, Uh, Romans 13. Paul says, and he's speaking here about the empire that crucified our Lord. You think about that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And then a few verses later, the famous verse, the emperor does not bear the sword in vain. So I think what Paul is doing here is articulating a general theological principle for the purpose of governance and with wisdom. Now, for centuries, this verse was used to justify the rule of a divine right monarch. Kings and their agents echoed the idea that there is no authority except from God. Therefore, you must submit to to my authority. But Paul's words here cannot be taken as giving carte blanche to rulers to do whatever they want to do. How can I say that? Well, because of other places in Scripture. For example, again, in the canon of Scripture, there is also a counter-teaching against abusive and unjust kings. Just one example, uh, found in Revelation 17, where the angel is speaking of the greatest city of his day, Rome. Chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Come, I will show you the judgment of Babylon the Great, mother of whores and the earth's abominations. Sorry, that word is in the Bible, so I'm just reading what it says. But John compares this city to two entities, Babylon, the ancient enemy of Israel, and a great whore. Now we are a long way here from Paul's language in Romans 13 concerning the emperor as God's servant to do you good. Uh, In Revelation 17, it is quite clear that this harlot is Rome and that God is judging her unjust deeds. Revelation 18 takes it a step further and presents a funeral for Babylon. And we learn why God has judged Rome. It's because her, her entire economic system is built on the backs of human slaves and God is judging a system of government that breaks one of the basic rules of life. Now, whatever Rome's judicial brilliance and architectural prowess and artistic excellence, and Rome is impressive, you can still see it all over uh, you know, Europe. Uh, it has left quite a footprint, but despite that, governments appointed by God are also accountable to God and to God's judgment for the injustices they commit. Okay, so what's my point? Well, it requires wisdom and discernment to read the richness of scripture. Knowing if it's time to talk about we need the social order that governments provide or we need God's judgment on the corrupt and wicked ways of the government. Both of those things can be true and it requires wisdom and discernment to to know which are we in a time of? Okay, that's not, that's not a cookie-cutter kind of thing. Uh, we have to be thoughtful and engaged and prayerful, and, and it's better when we do that in community. Again, two eyes have a better depth perception than, than one. Okay, you see where I'm going here. Okay, here, here's a second example. I've limited myself to two, but again, there are dozens. Okay, Proverbs and the book of Job. Oh. If you read the book of Proverbs, you'll learn that if you do what is right, God will grant you safety and protection, health and long life, even wealth and prosperity. Don't believe me? Read the Bible Uh, from Proverbs 2. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Discretion will protect you, and understanding will guard you, Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men. Uh, basically, do good and good well come to you. Now, just one problem, faith doesn't always work so neatly. Now, the thing about the Proverbs, and the Proverbs defense, if you will, is they describe how life works on average. Noticing recurring patterns, distilling general trends. And I think that is fair to say that proverbial wisdom is, if you, if you wanna play the odds, Go with the Proverbs. I mean, things do tend go to, to go better if you listen to your parents, if you don't practice evil ways, uh, if you're faithful to your spouse. I, things will tend to go better with, for you over the long haul if you follow the wisdom of the Proverbs. But here's the beauty of the canon of Scripture. In addition to Proverbs and, and say, Deuteronomy, we also have Job, Ecclesiastes, the Psalm of Lament which cry out to God when all is not well and things are not working according to the pattern. And so you have, for example, Ecclesiastes 9. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to the skillful. Th- these are all Proverbs. He's just quoting all the Proverbs. Uh, this is what the Proverbs say. That these things do come. Um, he said, not always, not always, time and chance happen to them all. Sometimes dumb luck, sometimes tragedy, sometimes gut-reaching injustice, in fact, happen. And so living upright, righteous lives often does produce safety, health, and a measure of prosperity, but not always. The hard truth is sometimes the wicked prosper, read Psalm 73, and the righteous suffer, read the whole Bible. (laughs) When your godly father gets colon cancer at age 55 and dies at age 57, that whole automatic health and wealth and security thing just doesn't ring true. But God in his wisdom has included books like Job and Ecclesiastes and the Psalm of Lament to help guide us and to help give us depth perception during those times where the simple proverbial wisdom doesn't always pan out the way you wanted it to prayed uh, that it would so I'm grateful uh, that we have laments and praises in the canon of scripture we need we need both want me to get (laughs) I'm so sorry no no you're good you're good alright so here's my question is the Bible more like the orderly French garden or the imaginative English I think the answer is yes (laughs) (laughs) scripture is a lush garden producing a great variety of flowers and trees and vegetables and and fruits and each plant adds its own unique colors and fragrances to the garden and sometimes scripture is like that French garden full of order and rationality and clarity, read Genesis 1 It, it is a it is a magisterial poem about the creation. Uh, and it is beautiful, and it is just tick, tock, tick, tock. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Tick, tock. And God is just creating. There is that. That is there. But, but sometimes, sometimes scripture is like an English garden full of God's unexpected mercy and gracious surprises. And so rather than wishing that every plant was as fragrant as a honeysuckle or as shady as a willow, we learn to appreciate each plant's unique contribution to the garden as a whole. And you may think there aren't very many times where you need Ezekiel, but sometimes you need to hear Ezekiel, that brilliant, slightly crazy prophet. If you ever read Ezekiel, read Ezekiel, you'll understand what I'm referring to. All right. So what? So what? If it's not clear to you now, here's what at least I'm hoping to get at. Our world is riven by tribalism and division. Our churches are not exempt from it. But Jesus knows that we need two eyes for better depth perception. And he invites all kinds to be his disciples in order to help the church see more clearly. The Apostle Paul understands that the cross helps us see beyond our tribalisms. Again, I'm not speaking against tribes, but I'm speaking against tribalism, against us and them thinking to help us see our shared humanity how the cross has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And even the canon of Scripture, with its great, rich variety of writings, requires wisdom from us to discern what time it is and how to wisely apply its teachings. And so, we need each other, even when our differences and our different perspectives may drive us bats. We need each other. And Jesus and Paul and the canon of Scripture teach us that we are better together, better held in tension, better living and walking together, <coughs> even when we don't see it all exactly the same thing. So let's quit fighting the diversity that God wants, that God ordains, that God blesses, that God designs Let's try to live into that and appreciate that. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for this chance to to consider, from the life and ministry of Jesus, from the teaching and insight of the Apostle Paul, even from the very shape and form of of your Scriptures, how important it is for us to receive the perplexing at times diversity of our world with with gratitude with open arms, with open hearts. Lord, God, help us to to lean into the diversity within the body of Christ and even beyond the body of Christ, Lord, to to learn from one another so that we may see you more clearly with greater perception and deeper insight. Lord, thank you for for the way of Jesus. Help us always to follow him. We pray in his name. Amen. 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 Thanks, everyone.